This Slate podcast is brought to you by Bing.com, the search engine that helps you make everyday decisions with the help of your friends. Now, what your friends like on Facebook is in your search results on Bing. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate spoiler special podcast on Transformers 3, Dark of the Moon. Joining me in Slate Studios is Mr. John Swansburg. Hi, Dana. Who is our culture editor and also the the resident uh, expert on all things Transformers. So I'm really, really glad you came in to see this one. Can you give your credentials? That's a dubious distinction uh, at best. Although our first first ever spoiler special was about the the first of Michael Bay's Transformer movies. Oh, really? Oh, memories. It was right after I started at Slate. Wow, I did not realize that. I mean, I, I clearly remember seeing that with you and spoiling it, but I didn't know it was our very first. Yeah, I, I, and I, I actually remember nothing of, of that of that movie. Before I was going into this one, I was trying in my mind to remember what happened in the original Transformers by Michael Bay and, and the sequel that we saw, whatever, two summers ago or last summer, and I can't recollect it all it all blends together the the giant cube from space then it was the tiny shard from the giant cube from space that's all i can pretty much remember and now it is actually sort of a fresh a whole fresh plot line yes Um, can you give your your background credentials on transformers how did you come to be the slate resident transformers expert it's not because of the movies no it's not it's because i am just the right age that i played with the toys when i was a kid when i was you know i think the toys sort of flourished in 1985 or thereabouts so that's when i was you know eight or nine years old so i was right in the sweet spot for playing with the toys and then watching the afternoon cartoon that was uh, based on the toys. It wasn't a Saturday cartoon? It was It was a weekday? I'm pretty sure I watched it syndicated on, on weekdays at like 4 or 4.30. Like it was sort of, it was packaged with G.I. Joe because, you know, also a Hasbro toy. And you could, there was kind of this like toy advertising, you know, hour and I would watch both of those shows. But I particularly love Transformers. I had a bunch of the toys. I actually still have some of them, including one in my New York apartment, I confess. And uh, I loved the TV show and I loved the original animated movie that came out in 1986. Which was just a TV movie movie it didn't play in theaters no no it did play in theaters i went to go see it in the movie theater it was great and it and they used the same voice for for optimus prime the main good transformer bot as as does the voices in the movie right peter collin um was optimus prime in the cartoons and in the cartoon movie and he's been brought back to be the voice of optimus prime in the michael bay movies i think he's the only voice actor who you know for whom there's some continuity between the cartoon and the live action (laughs) if we can call this live action oh well certainly action that's for sure (laughs) right um yeah peter collin is one of the most remarkable things about the movies, actually. And, and maybe we should listen to a clip of his voice here just to get a sense of, of, of the great sweep of his cheesy TV voice. That's a good idea. My name is Optimus Prime. We are autonomous robotic organisms from the planet Cybertron. Now, if only Michael Bay had been able to stick with that tone, that precise tone, the sort of, the sort of I don't know what to call it, the sort of ma- faux manly, fakey. It's like a little boy's idea of, of a good, strong man, right? Yeah, the absolutely. Peter Cullen voice. And there could be something really fun and, and sweet about these movies if he was able to stick with that tone. But the problem with these movies and getting worse with each one, I think, is that he can't seem to stick with any tone. Oh, my God. No. I mean, I, there are two registers in, in this movie and in all three movies, but particularly, I think, in this one. And they just are completely are at odds. There's a storyline involving the fight between the Autobots and the Decepticons, the, the two types of Transformer Basically, robot. the good bots and the bad bots. Right. right. And then there's the sort of human subplot and is starring uh, this character, Sam Witwicky, the character played by Shia LaBeouf. And he is just getting more annoying with, with each passing picture. Uh, and, and I think the humor that is try- they're trying to cultivate in the human scenes just falls flat. I mean, every each joke is worse than the last, at least to me. They all were complete duds. And there's sort of a slapstick quality to the human drama. And then there's sort of like 
ominous the world is at stake quality to the robot drama and you're switching back and forth between those two registers constantly in the movie and it's incredibly jarring. Yeah, the, the jokes are, I can't even really describe the, the badness of the jokes. Well, can, you, like, can you quote a joke? <laughs> I don't know if I can quote Well, for, there's one scene, for instance, where Sam Witwicky is, is in his hanging out with his parents in their RV. They've come to visit him in an RV and the jokes are all sort of of the type where the mother is kind of like an overbearing mother and she's concerned that her son has, got, has gotten into a fight with his girlfriend and she starts making it, you know, saying, you know, you should go after her. She's really beautiful. You've had two beautiful girlfriends. There's no chance you'll have a, have a, a shot at a third unless you have a big – and then she sort of dot, dot, dot. And it's like a joke about a mom referencing her son's penis. <laughs> like that's so, that's so the cringeful. quality of the – yeah. It's just like – it's like not funny cringe humor and it's just – then you have to imagine, then you cut to a scene where there's just this surging patriotic music and a slow motion torn flag waving in the breeze as robots battle it out mythically in front of the flag. Right, like two seconds after the like failed, <laughs> failed penis mom joke. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. I know, I, I know some critics out there are sort of saying that this actually achieves sort of like the vision of Michael Bay that you see in Team America, you know, that right. it's, it's almost like Michael Bay satirizing himself. And I so wanted that to be the case. It is certainly true that his Baroque excesses have gotten so extreme that it, it's hard to imagine it getting any more absurd, but that didn't keep the movie from being boring. No, it didn't. I was looking at my watch consistently through the second. It's two hours and 35 minutes long. Feels or like, like four. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as you noted when we were walking out, the, the climactic action scene, which you might imagine in a two and a half hour movie would, would take up the last, you know, 30 minutes actually feels like it takes up the last 90 minutes. It's like the, the climactic fight just goes on and on and on. And it's just, I mean, some of it is sort of fun to watch, but it's just at a certain point, you're just like, all right, let's 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 resolve this, guys. We know that the Autobots are going to win, and uh, it's just a matter of how they're going to achieve it. There is a sprightly beginning, though, sort of a teaser right before, what do you, what would you call it, a cold open, right, before, cold the, open, right yeah. before the uh, the opening credits. Uh, do you want to set that up? It's what the Dark of the Moon title comes from, and it's really sad that it gets dropped over the course of the I know. I was like, I was, uh, I was really crestfallen because I thought that this might be a different movie than, than the one it turned out to be based on the opening uh, that we're, we're, we're treated to, which is so the beginning of the movie <clears throat> has this kind of great uh, <laughs> uh, sort of revisionist history of America where it turns out that the uh, – Apollo 11 mission to the moon wasn't about beating the Russians and just kind of getting to the moon for the sake of of taking a walk on it and planting the American flag there. Rather, NASA has sort of figured out that a alien craft, turns out to be a transformer alien craft, has crashed on the moon. And we sent the astronauts to the moon in order to sort of check out this this alien landing. And so there's this great scene where we see the Apollo 11 landing craft kind of getting on the moon. With real Walter Cronkite footage, right? Real with, Cronkite some, with some footage. real astronaut footage. Exactly. Like sort of splicing in. There's some great sort of splicing in of historical footage. There's footage of Kennedy uh, as well and, and Nixon. The, yeah, so the guys get on the moon, and then we sort of switch into the into Michael Bay's world, and we get this scene where like Houston instructing the astronauts, okay, we've kind of gone dark. No one in America knows what you're doing. You have 20 minutes. Go achieve your mission. And, and these guys run from their lunar lander. And, of course, about 10 feet from the lunar lander, <laughs> you know, just outside of camera's range is uh, this massive transformer ship that Buzz Aldrin walks into and kind of checks out and reports back to Houston like, oh, my God, you know, there's, another, there's something else out there. And it turns out that America and, and the Soviets apparently knew about the Transformers going all the way back to the early 60s and that the space race was an effort to kind of see you could get to the alien ship first and try to you know figure out what 
the technology was, et cetera, et cetera. So that part is all like really kind of great. I mean, it's goofy, but it's very fun and kind of well done. They're, you know, they splice in footage of a kind of fake Kennedy pretty well with the actual Kennedy, you know, in the original scenes. And I don't know, it just sort of sets up this kind of this notion that the Transformers history is tied up with our history in a way that we didn't expect from the previous movies. I thought it kind of worked. And then that happens. Then there's the Transformers logo comes up on the screen, sort of, sort of standard credit opening, and then Sam Witwicky. And, right. and we're just like back in this, you know, this world of – Isn't uh, the very first thing we see in the world after the, after the credits just uh, <laughs> in very close up, the, the ass of Rosie Huntington-Whiteley? Exactly. The first shot is, is, the, is, is the ass of the new love interest. The uh, Megan Fox replacement. The Megan Fox replacement. Walking, she's walking up the stairs of her apartment to, to Sam in like his shirt and like a pair of – Underwear and like it's a very tight, like fish eye shot of her butt. Yeah, so that's, anytime we see um, Carly, which is the new love interest name, basically the camera sort of goes into soft focus, almost like high tech Vaseline on the lens kind of mode. Yeah. And, you know, she's standing on top of some wreckage with her hair blowing in the wind or something like that. She actually makes Megan Fox's character in the first two look sort of complex because yeah. remember how Megan Fox was kind of a gearhead and she was into fixing motorcycles and yeah. she had this kind of tough girl side or whatever. That's that's a heck of a lot more character than this girl's given. Carly her. is like a diplomat that Sam Witwicky met after. Obama gave him a medal for his work in the previous movie, Saving the World. And oh, another thing that's set up and then never carried through on that we both wanted to see carried through on is that is that Sam Witwicky's kind of a jerk in the opening. Yeah. The scene where Obama gives him this medal, right, and he's kind of uh, preening over it and, and parading around, shoving it in people's face and stuff. And the idea that it's kind of gone to his head, that he saved the world from alien invasion twice – would have been a promising beginning, but yeah. that sort of gets dropped too. Or essentially, the movie just accepts: okay, he is a jerk, but he's your protagonist. Like, right, anyway. deal with it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That could have been a kind of funny side plot that you know, this here's a kid who has saved the world twice, and he knows it, but he can't brag about it. Like, that's a kind of interesting predicament to be, to be in. And it could the to- uh, the movie could have toyed with that more, but it just sets it up in the beginning. He's struggling to get a job. He can't, you know, he can't put on his resume. Went to Egypt and fought off invasion by Decepticon forces. <laughs> so instead, he's sort of like, yeah, I went to college like everybody else and he can't get a job. But then that plot, like so many other plot strands, are just sort of lost in the wreckage between that's created by the fight between the Autobots and the Decepticons. One that's thankfully lost, I think, is everything involving John Malkovich and his company that Shia LaBeouf eventually goes to work for. So John Malkovich has this really over-the-top cameo as this, this guy who runs some kind of tech company. Right. And uh, and Ken Jeong works at the company. Is that how you say his name? I think so, yeah. And has a really, really embarrassing comic cameo, too. And just that story is going nowhere. So right. the scene when <laughs> Ken Jeong gets shoved out a window and goes splat on the sidewalk was sort of a relief. And then John Malkovich essentially disappears from the story, too. Yeah, completely unclear to me why they bothered even having that subplot. The Ken Jeong character, I guess, is supposed to tip off Sam Witwicky to what's going on, like the sort of state of affairs between the Autobots and the Decepticons. But... It, you could have done that in a completely different fashion and, and without subjecting us to a series of kind of like 14-year-old homophobic jokes. I mean, that's like another example of the kind of humor we have is like Ken Jeong and Shia LaBeouf having what looks to be a tryst in a, in a bathroom stall when, you know, when in fact they're fighting. It just, it's, it just it's really fratty. It's, it's really fratty and, frat and just not funny and just pathetic. So there's also John Turturro as a um, guy who's written a, a best-selling book exposing the, uh, the the robot wars, right? The secrets behind the robot wars. There's also oh God knows what else. Patrick Dempsey as uh, the boss of of the sexy girlfriend, right? Who who's, presents her with a two hundred thousand dollar car, which the instant he gives it to her, you know he's a bad guy, and that's a bad guy Decepticon yeah. transformer car. I mean, at some point, he's going to transform and trap the girl. Right, right. He sort of plays like the 
human liaison <laughs> uh, to the Decepticons. He's like their, the Decepticon point man on Earth. Like the mole, the inside yeah, guy for, exactly. for the human race. But so then what we really have to set up here is, is in the robot war, we have a new robot who hasn't been in any of the prior movies, who we think at first is one of the good guys, the Autobots, right. voiced by Leonard Nimoy. Yes, um, wonderfully. Pretty, pretty great voice voice acting, yeah. And his name is Sentinel Prime. So so he, <laughs> come on, you're the Transformers guy. Okay. Talk me through here. So my understanding of how this how this fits into the mythology is that the Primes, I think, are are sort of, if, you're, if your name has a Prime in it, that means that you're a leader of the Autobots. And Sentinel Prime was... Optimus Prime's predecessor, the, the sort of mentor of Optimus Prime, who is now the, the leader of the Autobots and the sort of chief do-gooder. Is he the one who was dug up on the moon at the beginning? Yeah. So so it turns out that that ship that uh, Apollo 11 found was being flown by Sentinel Prime, who kind of landed on the moon and went into some kind of robot torpor and has been there kind of asleep, essentially, since the 60s. And the the Decepticon the, the Decepticon plot is like so rococo that it's not worth describing here. But essentially, the Decepticons trick Optimus Prime into thinking that uh, Sentinel Prime is you know reviving Sentinel Prime will help them fight the Decepticons. When in fact, it turns out this is a big spoiler, by the way, that. Sentinel Prime, before leaving Cybertron, the um, the home planet of both sides in the robot war, he decided to switch sides from the Autobots to Decepticons. He fi- he decided that the only way to save Cybertron, which is in, in the civil was to destroy it, was to destroy it. <laughs> He's somehow. a Robert McNamara of, of <laughs> yeah, robots. Exactly, Robert McNamara, by the way, in the, is quietly in this movie in that in that uh, opening sequence. Not not the Robert McNamara, obviously, but uh, but the Buzz Aldrin is in the, the movie. Buzz Aldrin is yeah, and there's a, and there's they have some actor playing McNamara at one point. Um, it sort of surprises me, by the way, sidebar that Buzz Aldrin would appear in a movie that has any sort of that posits any sort of moon landing conspiracy theory I know it was very game of him but surprising I don't know it, it was kind of fun to see him show up I suppose anyway so, so the letter Nimoy robot Sentinel Prime is switched sides and uh, but Optimus Prime doesn't know that so Optimus goes up to the moon they retrieve the Sentinel Prime robot body bring him back to Earth, and they and Optimus Prime produces from his innards the Matrix, the uh, which is like the this like thing, oh, the Matrix of leadership, the Matrix of leadership, <laughs> sorry. the Matrix of leadership, which which I guess all Autobot leaders carry within them. And this is from the old show, the Matrix. This is from yeah, well, the original movie, the original animated movie, centered on the uh, <laughs> the Matrix of leadership and uh, the passing of the Matrix of leadership, because in the original '86 animated movie, Optimus Prime actually gets killed, and the next uh, Autobot leader has to sort of accept the. Uh, matrix of leadership. Anyway, so in this, but in this instance, Optimus uses the matrix of leadership to kind of revivify Sentinel Prime. I like uh, the scene where they're tossing it back and forth like a hot potato. The two <laughs> yeah. prime leaders trying to decide who's going to be in charge. No, you. No, no, I couldn't. You take the matrix of leadership. Right. Well, this is one of many things that doesn't make sense, right? So Optimus Prime says, "Here, Sentinel, you should take the matrix of leadership. You were my mentor. You taught me everything I know." And then. Sentinel Prime demurs and says, "No, no, like you're the you're the leader now. You take it." And they're, like you said, they're kind of like passing it back and forth. But my understanding is that the matrix of leadership is like something that you it makes you that much more powerful. And if Sentinel Prime really was planning to da- like take over the world in this dastardly fashion, why wouldn't he accept the matrix of leadership? Wouldn't that just like make him that much more hard to defeat? Right, you're no- right. He, maybe he maybe he was just bluffing. He knew he was going <laughs> to end up with it in the end. Yeah, I don't know because in the end he ends up trying to to kill Optimus and and all of the. Uh, 
the Autobot. So anyway. I am so grateful to have you here because otherwise, really, honestly, it just looked to me like piles of car parts <laughs> beating on each other. No, no. The, the Matrix of Leadership is very important. Uh, but Optimus retains it. It sounds like the moral clarity in the old cartoon was just far outstripped anything in the Michael Bay movies, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean what was the, at stake? What was at stake when the Matrix of Leadership was being tossed back and forth? Was, it was, it was completely opaque in, in this movie. But clarity is, is obviously not one of this movie's strong points. I mean, there are a lot of things that don't really make any oh, one sense. One of my favorite things that doesn't make any sense, but it's actually sort of really fun to laugh about later, is is that one of the things that the Autobots are trying to have happen at the end, right? One of the goals of the bad robot guys is that the entire destroyed planet of Cybertron is somehow going to be brought onto Earth, and the entire human race will become, as they say, a six billion member slave labor force to help right. rebuild their planet. So there's this really ridiculous moment where they build this thing called a space bridge that's kind of like a string going through space, basically. Right. And they pull their planet somehow right into the Earth's orbit. Yeah. So like, it sort of looks like that old Saturday Night Live bit of, they brought back the moon. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's the Decepticon plan is to beam Cybertron to Earth. And the, expl- and the explanation for why that needs to happen is utterly ludicrous. It's, the, it's that, you know, Cybertron is, is, is like kind of like a metal planet and it's been, you know, torn apart by, by centuries of civil war between these two robot factions. And apparently the best way to, for the Decepticons to rule Cybertron and rebuild it is not to go back there with, you know, Energon cubes or, or like, you know, having defeated their enemies, but to bring Cybertron to Earth and then utilize the slave labor of humankind to rebuild it. But, like, humans are so much smaller than Transformers. Like, the idea that they could be in any way useful in rebuilding, an, like, a, a whole planet made of metal, <laughs> as, you, as you said, the learning curve, like, just like training I like imagining them. The, the training yeah. session. <laughs> yeah. Like, 9 a.m. Saturday morning, guys. <laughs> report to yeah. Cybertron. It's just really, it's just really goofy. But yeah, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to beam Sentinel Prime. In addition to being, I guess, a, a former leader of the Autobots, was also a, a tinkerer, and he had, had invented that space bridge. And they, they're kind of throughout the movie, they're fighting over control of the space bridge, um, which the Decepticons would use to beam Cybertron into Earth's orbit, and they almost succeed in doing it. God, your grasp of this story is, is just staggering <laughs> to me. Okay, so let's get to the let's get to the huge, long. Really, it literally is probably forty to fifty minute long yeah. action sequence. There's essentially nonstop spectacular action for for the last third of the movie, right? right? And a couple of moments in there, actually, had had it been better focused and flowed a little bit better, and not had so many false endings, some of them would have been pretty powerful, just visually powerful. There's a moment when they're in this glass skyscraper in Chicago, right? And Chicago's right. being ravaged by outer space robots. And there's all kinds of kind of physics gags. I mean, kind of frightening gags, but essentially gags where this um, this building is slowly toppling. It's sort of like the top of it is like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, leaning in one right. direction. And they're all like sliding back and forth. And I can't really describe the jokes per se, but a lot of it sort of reminded me of some, uh, some early silent comedy. Like what would happen if your entire building slid on its side? And they're all sort of finding things to grab onto and then it goes in the other direction and they have to move right. back again and there's this moment that they're sliding down the sheer face of the building about to go hurtling you know a hundred stories down and and one of the guys one of the uh, the meathead military guys says shoot the glass so they start <laughs> shooting the windows and then falling through the holes in the windows right. back into the building to temporary safety yeah that was that was a pretty ingenious little set piece within the larger madness of, of the of the uh, action sequence i mean i also thought just setting that last part in chicago was kind of fun because if you're if the whole all the action is going to be robots kind of scaling buildings and, and blowing up buildings. Chicago is, has a beautiful skyline and a varied skyline. It was sort of more interesting than having it in New York or L.A. So that was kind of a, a nice choice. Those buildings have some serious structural integrity. I mean, they were yeah. seriously hanging on by one brick for 20 <laughs> minutes at a time. It's true. So anyway, the, yeah, the, the Decepticons and the Autobots are just sort of 
duking it out, and the humans have various plans to thwart the Decepticons as well. So there's like always kind of parallel plots. It's like there's a group of Autobots who are advancing on a position, and then there are a group of humans who are also advancing on the position, and the humans have a plan to jump out of a plane and fire a Tomahawk missile, and the Autobots have a plan to, I don't know, like just, I guess, beat up the other the, other, the bad guys, and it's kind of cutting between these, these different efforts to thwart the Decepticon plan, and eventually, spoiler alert, they do. Because that's the way these movies always end. Okay, so now that we've cruelly mocked this movie for going on 20 minutes, is there is there anything that you want to revisit that you sort of liked or that brought back some of the warm feelings you have for the Transformers franchise? Um, <laughs> that's that's hard. I mean, I think uh, there, you know, they, they brought back a couple of characters from the original show that was in, in a way that was sort of fun. Shockwave uh, was a character from the original uh, cartoon series who I, I don't remember seeing in the previous movies, although, like I said, I don't really remember the previous movies that that well. I barely remember this one, and I saw it last night. Um, but uh, he was a character in the in the original cartoon who was sort of this milk toast guy who kind of manned the transformer version of the uh, tractor beam or the transport beam. And here he kind of shows up as more as more of a badass kind of uh, robot. It's sort of sort of fun to see him and hear his voice. Um, but he he wasn't. I don't know. It wasn't that exciting. But he, so uh, he was like the Scotty of the. He was yeah. He was like the Scotty of the original cartoon. And, and in this in this movie, he's kind of you know he's much more aggressive and uh, fearsome than he ever was in the in the cartoon. But that was sort of an interesting uh, interpretation. One thing that I thought was kind of uh, I found amusing. Uh, I don't know if it's actually a good thing about the movie, but in what must be a, a just a, was a blatant corporate tie-in. Two of the Autobots, three of the Autobots transform in this movie not into uh, late model Chevrolets or uh, or anything, you know, kind of fun and fancy like a Mack truck, but to um, NASCAR stock cars, which as a NASCAR fan, I, I appreciate it, but also it's just completely ridiculous. If the idea that is that the Transformers are robots that can transform into vehicles and therefore, you know, keep a somewhat low profile... Um, the idea that you would tra- the car you would transform into is a uh, corporate logo encrusted uh, stock car, <laughs> and there's uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Jimmy Johnson, and um, Juan Pablo Montoya's cars uh, uh, are, are all represented. It was just like really, really goofy piece of product placement, but also one that I was so brazen that I kind of had to chuckle. Hiding at. in plain sight, man, it's yeah, genius. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Oh, and one other thing that I thought was really funny, in the, and this is in the very beginning, was that the idea at the beginning of the movie, the you know, the Transformers, the Autobots have are allied to um, the U.S. government and in the Decepticons at least at first in the movie are lying low and they're not a problem so the movie posits that the Autobots keep busy during moments of uh, Decepticons being out of the way by going around and like doing the U.S. government's bidding so there's this hilarious scene where five Autobots uh, cars kind of like are disguised as the vehicles belonging to a like Middle East dictator and they like kind of blast through a security gate and blow up a like illegal Mideast nuclear site that was my favorite thing was just on the, in the lower left hand corner of the screen illegal yeah. middle eastern <laughs> nuclear site that's exactly what it said illegal <laughs> and so it i get, might as well have just said bad guy depot yeah, or something exactly. like that. iranian bad guy depot so that's <laughs> so that's kind of what the autobots do uh absent any you know megatron machination so i thought that was kind of they're just free roaming do-gooders in the free-roaming do-gooders yeah so i thought that was kind of amusing what about you I can't really say that there were a lot of, uh, of of saving graces, but I guess I was somewhat the, the sheer brazen length of that last action sequence. I mean, it's not enjoyment exactly; it's more an awe, a profound awe at Michael Bay's absolute 
dominance of this <laughs> of this big Hollywood bullshit blockbuster yeah. genre, right? I mean, nobody is willing to be as brazen as him. He doesn't have the pretense to artistry that a James Cameron does. He doesn't have the campiness, I don't think, that Paul Verhoeven or no. I think Roland Emmerich does. Definitely he's just not. he's just out there doing it without irony, without talent, <laughs> without skill, <laughs> but with just enormous cojones. Yeah, you kind of have to tip your hat to that. And you did you like the um you like the Lincoln Memorial scene. Oh, the Lincoln Memorial. Yes, actually, that is that was a funny moment. And if there was more stuff like that, it would be great. Remember how, how we loved in the very first Transformers movie? I think it was the first, where, um, where all the bad guys, or was it the good guys? They were hanging out on top of the Hoover Dam. It was right. all the good guys. It was all the good guys, yeah. And, and before the final action sequence, they rallied. And because they're so big and mythical, they said, hey, let's meet on the Hoover Dam. And right. nothing in particular happened. They just had a strategy meeting there, and right. it was awesome. So the equivalent of that in this movie is that there's a moment that the bad guys meet all at the, uh, at the Lincoln Memorial in D.C., right? right? And just for the sheer pleasure of it, Megatron, the head of the bad guys, blows Lincoln out of his seat, right, with some kind of outer space machine gun right. and just plonks himself right down in the right. marble chair and sits there. <laughs> it's a really funny visual gag. And it's like that's something where it makes you sort of sad, right, because it, there could be more campy fun like that in these movies. It would be so easy to make a fun action movie that also had, a, had more moments like that. Like 2012. I mean, 2012, I thought, accomplished that beautifully, right? Yeah. It, was, it had spectacle and it had, you know, awe and grandeur and the end of the world, but it was funny as hell and it was full of, of uh, iconic, you know, whether it was a, a, a landmark, geographic landmark, whatever. Right. It, was, it was just full of moments when those things got either smashed, blown to bits, you know, <laughs> triumphantly ascended, you, you, you name it. Right. And this movie's sense of humor is, is sort of, you know, it's like bad 14-year-old boy humor and it's, it, there's very few moments like the Lincoln Memorial scene where it's, it's just kind of fun. John, thank you so much for making this way more bearable than it would have been otherwise. And if there's a Transformers 4, please, I'm going to I'm gonna build a space bridge and haul you in like <laughs> You're going to need it. You're going to need it. But I will – I guess I'll show up again. This was fun. Our producer is Krishnan Vasudevan and the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.